ahead and get started. We can talk about our main topic for today, which is the fructose hypothesis and the uh, sugar hypothesis. Right. So how do you consider those different? Uh, I don't really. I kind of consider them like the same thing. Um, and I would imagine most people would consider them the same thing. I know that in that one paper challenging the fructose hypothesis, like they were, they spent um, a good portion of the time differentiating between the effects of glucose and fructose. Uh-huh. Well, so is the sugar hypothesis the sucrose hypothesis or is it I think like it's just the... like I think it's like any kind of sugars. That's what I would consider that. Hmm. So that would also include like lactose and maltose. What about starches? Do they include those in there? I don't think so. I think those would be considered carbohydrates because that's the thing is you know that's what's popular is sugar is bad you know let's enact a sugar tax and stuff like that but nobody like yes there's like a big like uh low carb momentum as well but like um nobody's saying to like ban or like tax carbohydrates like you know bread and 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 other starches are fine uh-huh but right, right. But you know, sugar is is bad. Yeah. Okay. So I think of the thing with the fructose and the sugar as like maybe three or so waves of things. Like the first one was um like that article you sent about like fructose metabolism affecting mineral metabolism and uh I think if you give animals and maybe humans, I'm not sure, really high doses, you can get some gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, So that was almost like a pharmacological hypothesis that like fructose in um, like non-normal doses can have these problems. And then that somehow got morphed into fructose as being consumed can have those problems yeah and then that i think morphed into the second one which is that sugar like sucrose and fructose are basically responsible for obesity and diabetes because you know like insulin or something and then and that's like Taubes and i guess lustig and then the third thing is, well, since fructose doesn't really affect insulin that much, it's this stuff in the liver. So that's kind of the way I see like the whole fructose and sucrose story. What do you mean by the stuff in the liver? Um, how it gets, so it doesn't get, it doesn't stay in the bloodstream as long as dietary glucose and it doesn't require insulin to get put into cells like glucose but it mostly gets put into the liver and supposedly can cause fatty liver and um, definitely increases the liver's export of 
LDL and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I know one paper that I was reading this morning, sugars and health controversies. What does the science say? Uh, by James Ripa and Theodore Angelopoulos. as published in 2015. Um, they were talking about how uh, the fructose, it only produces uh, like 1% to 5% fat, like de novo lipogenesis in the liver. Uh-huh. So. Right. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, the problem with this is that uh, that's I was sort of hinting at that with that first thing about like the pharmacological oh yeah well I mean both analysis yeah. um all of the, the all of the papers that that we're talking about um they all are you know they they hammer that home that you know all the studies that that basically prove that you know fructose or or sucrose are are bad are like supra physiological they don't occur in normal human diets you know yeah i think the argument is look we can get this effect with a you know a supra physiological dose um the intake has increased in the general population and things related to the effects that we're getting at these really high doses are increasing in the general population and so they go therefore you know this sub super physiological dose that we're using is like underlying the, these changes but the thing is if they can't demonstrate like experimentally that the relevant doses that people are are consuming are causing those problems then you can't do that <laughs> yeah well i think the problem is um they're thinking linearly like they're thinking it's a, a linear process whereas like nothing in biology is linear or like you know very few things but right yeah so they're extrapolating like okay at the top of this line the top of the dose yeah. there's this effect <laughs> and they're just and drawing the bottom, a line back down there's no yeah. effect yeah 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 um, whereas it's probably like a, a, a curve where yeah most things are like the a u curve or you know, something like that. Yeah. I mean, there's probably some sort of like asymptote or something. Uh, but yeah, I, and, you know, and I also think that when you, that one article that I looked at it too, the, what does the science say? Um, I do like that article, but I gotta say that phrase, what does the science say? <laughs> um, that's, that's been, like borrowed from the whole climate debate right and now it's just yeah. it's like the style like well yeah. let's see what it's like a, a game yeah. like simon says like science says <laughs> yeah or or the facts or the scientists and stuff like that it's yeah i yeah i, I disagree i i dislike that that rhetoric as well yeah, I feel like it wouldn't be so bad if it didn't have all the context from the climate thing because it just sounds like when you say that you're trying to shut somebody down instead of just make an argument. Oh yeah, definitely. Um but I was actually incorrect when I quoted earlier. Um 
Various investigators reported that only 1-5% to of the fructose consumed will be converted to TGs through the process of de novo lipogenesis. So that's not fat. I assume the TGs is triglycerides. Yeah. 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 Um, I think a bunch of it becomes glycerol as well for the for the triglycerol backbone. And then uh, some of it goes into fat for LDL. Um, and But yeah, a lot of it gets burned up in the liver, which is the part that never gets discussed. Yeah. Um, what kind of process is it used for in the liver? Well, it just gets thrown into... It's just like... Um, you know how ketogenesis happens when so many fatty acids get into the liver that the liver starts to make these you know smaller products and then exports them it's it's the same kind of thing like a certain amount of fructose goes into the liver and a small amount of it will get made into fatty acids uh or like glycerol for triglycerides and a lot of it will just get thrown right into um the step in glycolysis that it's relevant to and just get oxidized. And as you increase the amount going in, you just increase the, uh, which is the secondary same thing with glucose too. That it does. There's minor offshoots of the main pathway that can happen. And if you overload the system, those offshoots become more and more significant, but they're still relatively insignificant compared to just traditional oxidation. Yeah, I mean, um, so a lot of these papers, they also all have the uh, the conclusion in common that, you know, it, it's not not sugars that are causing the obesity um, epidemic. It's actually an excess of energy. And um, I kind of disagree where their conclusion, like probably in their concept of the conclusion, but I think that that phrasing is accurate because... Um, it is an excess of energy because it's an that's an amount of energy that one's body cannot utilize. So like it would be like just shoving, you know, to you I um I I kind of like try to stay away from metaphors as much as possible because that's like one of my pet peeves is because they create um improper understandings of everything. People forget that it's just a metaphor and not like how things actually exist. And I'll talk about that later. Um, but the excess sugar or the excess energy is a problem because it's like having, um, putting too much fuel into your car. Um, and so it's just like spilling out. And so there are two ways to solve that as you can either get a bigger engine that it's going to use up more of that fuel or you can get a bigger tank, a method of storage. And so like that's that's how you would solve that excess energy is being able to utilize that energy or storing it as fat. Like right. that's how I see it. And so um I don't I don't have like a conclusive answer on like why they're not able to use that energy. Um or I mean like I can definitely offer a lot of things to look at but i don't have like anything that to me is conclusive like i would 
you know, for sure, like you definitely want to, um, upregulate your metabolism, um, you know, thyroid hormone and stuff like that. But I think a lot of it too, um, and this is kind of like my personal thesis that I'm exploring is a deficiency of certain nutrients, um, specifically micronutrients. Yes. Micronutrients specifically like a lot of like the B vitamins, um, like B1, B2, B3, um, but then also, um, minerals like potassium and magnesium and I mean, several others as well, but yeah, that that's, that's how I see it. Yeah. Uh, that actually reminds me, I had a couple of tabs up to make a, a comment on like part of the discourse about fructose and how I think it's really not so good. Um, and this one is ex- has an example related to what you just said. It's a Mercola article. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Mercola from it's actually it's pretty old. It's from 2010. This was when I think Lustig was at his uh, zenith, Peak. yeah, <laughs> um, of popularity. So it says sugar may be bad, but this sweetener called fructose is far more deadly. And it's got like a Lustig YouTube video embedded, and then and then it's got a Mercola article. And he has five bullet points about basically it says fructose is a major contributor to, um, and one says insulin resistance and obesity, which that's, I mean, the insulin resistance, I mean, I guess that's the liver hypothesis, the liver part of the hypothesis, but, yeah, uh, elevated blood pressure. I, I don't know, elevated triglycerides and LDL. That's for sure true. But most of the people criticizing fructose are low carb, high fat people that would also have, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But the fourth one is the one that I think is so ridiculous, depletion of vitamins and minerals. So that sounds really bad, right? Like to, because lay people read Mercola, they read Mercola and honestly, it's probably better to read Mercola than to like get advice from your doctor. Yeah. But, or like, you know, reading some magazine from the grocery store, but he really play. I don't know if he knows better or if he's not that well-versed and he just knows a little bit, but he's saying it like a normal person would go, Oh, it depletes your vitamins and minerals. And they would think of that almost like, um, it destroys them or it makes you urinate them out yeah, or something like that. But that description could be for every nutrient. Mm-hmm. Because it uses them, and fructose uses a lot of them, yeah. like the B vitamins and the minerals, magnesium. It's like you want to be some kind of vitamin it's so metabolically, Yeah, it's so active <laughs> metabolically. Yeah, I like, mean, yeah, it's like you okay, you got all these vitamins and minerals, but like, do you want to use them for anything, or you just want to keep them around? Right. So if you were to, it's the same thing. Like you could say, exercise depletes vitamins and minerals, mm-hmm. or it, eating food in general, like compared to fasting. Um, especially food that's going to be metabolized rapidly. So I guess if you had, and I, I assume he's getting this from like a test of lab animals where they're given a certain chow diet and then they're given a bunch of supplementary fructose and they're not given any more vitamins or minerals. And then you'll see that their blood vitamins and minerals are lower. And it's like, okay, A, that's not really an interesting finding. That's just... Like, of course, if you have more macronutrients, you need more micronutrients or the micronutrients will go down. 
And B, was that tied to any negative outcomes? You know, it's not just like yeah. by itself. There's a lot of like, uh, I guess you could call like secondary findings. Um, like you said, like, you know, does anything bad come of that? You know, like pe- now people use as a proxy, like, like blood lipids and stuff like that, because that's supposed to be a bad thing. Right. Does that make like that? that's now like a proxy for does anything bad happen? And not just like, just some sort of objective measurement and objective finding. That's like now the cholest- the cholesterol is bad as opposed to mortality or something like that. Yeah, that's really funny because I was writing something. I just uh, submitted uh, an essay to Mises.org. I was going to put it on my blog, but I figured maybe I'll try and get it on there. And I had like three or four paragraphs that I ended up deleting because it was just too long, exact, saying exactly what you just said, <laughs> which is like, I used uh, heart heart disease as an example. Like um, you start off with, okay, heart disease is having a heart attack, you know, <laughs> yeah, or something like that. Like that's the, or like having insufficient, um, you know, like having like angina pectoris or something from like something that can actually be like, this is a symptom that's hurting me. And then they had these things like high blood pressure and your blood chemistry and other measurements to predict those things. And then they took away that and just turned those predictors into the thing itself. So you could go your whole life without having a heart attack or any symptoms of any cardiovascular disease. And if you just have high cholesterol, you have heart disease. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's almost, I mean, in a way it's uh, the the kind of like intellectual dishonesty is similar to like what we were talking about on the last episode where, um, you know, basic research is supposed to lead to economic growth. They create a chain of connections, you know, they sort of like disconnect the whole, the whole thing. And then they can kind of say whatever they want. They can insert right. whatever, whatever kind of, uh, proof or, or facts for that, because then, like now, yeah, once you have cholesterol is bad, then anything that does anything with cholesterol, you can now, that becomes like your leverage. Right. And yeah, it's it's easy. I think it's easy for people to wrap their heads around. You can measure it and get a number. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the thing which, about yeah. cholesterol too, is that was like one of like the first things that, that you could measure. And so that's why that, that became so prominent like and why it still is considered extremely important your your cholesterol right. levels because that was like one of the first things that that research scientists could measure um in animals and and people and stuff like that and so that's kind of like that first mover advantage <laughs> yeah and it's also like the tail wagging the dog yeah like instead of going okay we have our minds to address this problem and here's the tools that are subservient to our minds it kind of becomes the other way where it's like this tool works it's cheap you know it's plentiful so let's contour the way that our mind works around this tool that we like so well yeah exactly because it's like i don't think we would have had a lot of the uh the the commonly accepted truths about um, what's healthy and unhealthy today if, you know, cholesterol was harder to measure or something or something else was preceded it. 
Right. You know, because then you wouldn't have had all the the uh, uh, Ansel keys and then uh, the China study and stuff like that. Those would, you know, the the thing underpinning underpinning those those things would have been it wouldn't have been there. Yeah, um, that's yeah. It's weird how close that is to the thing that I just wrote. <laughs> Uh, hey, I mean that's why we get along so well. It's because <laughs> we just think about things so similarly. But actually, maybe I can I can I read a couple uh, yeah sure things from that. So uh, let's see. It's called I called it proofreading science, and I was trying to make an analogy between, you know, like I don't know, are you good at proofreading? Like to <laughs> to people, you know, like some people are good at that. Like you'll be like, hey, can you proofread my thing? I guess it's not so much of a big deal now that everybody uses spell check, but there's still that doesn't catch everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I consider myself I mean, sometimes I'm better than others, but I guess to me proofreading is also like I consider that like editing as well. Right. But specifically just like a like the I start off saying, you know, proofreading is pretty like grammar doesn't really it's matter, very it's very technical know? yeah just dotting the i's and crossing the t's and stuff right and but then i tried to say that there's an analogy to proofreading in science which is just like in proofreading your goal is to not just skim over and like if there's one wrong letter in a 10 letter word to just let your brain fill that in with the right letter you want to see exactly what's there um and that that's really important in science because uh if you have like a bunch of assays that tell us a story. So I say, let's see, once an assay serves to confirm itself, there is a further tendency to see only confirming data. If four out of five assays confirm each other to tell a story, the fifth becomes invisible as one wrong letter in a word is glossed over. So the same idea of like the, the tests, the assays and all that data driving the question and it becomes like you just look at it and you go, oh, look, this this all makes sense. And then there's this one thing that doesn't make sense. And in science, that should be like, okay, full stop. <laughs> you know, like can't cannot proceed. Um, but if you just don't see it, either like actually don't see it with your eyes or like some sort of psychological like, oh, that's not really, that's not really there. Um, then you can move on with your paper and your grant and your all the, all that stuff yeah and so there's an incentive to do that i think it's kind of like i mean i don't want to say like statistics is a bad science but it's kind of like you know it's using like i've you know i've been talking about this before but you know you have that outlier and so now you can exclude it right like it, it's this uh we're letting like mathematics and numbers take control of of the scientific process Whereas, like, you know, like, a couple of centuries ago, if you were some intrepid researcher, you know, and you got those results, you would be in, like, that's how a lot of like the, the discovery stories read is like, this weird thing happened. And so they investigated it. And, and something came out of it. But but now, right. you would just ignore it because it's an outlier. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that in my um like in the lab that I'm in now, uh, something weird might happen 
and everybody's immediately disappointed because they're like, oh, you know, we wanted this experiment to go this way so that we could just wrap up this paper, you know, with this last piece of data explaining this property of this enzyme or whatever. And from my perspective, it's like, oh, man, like, <laughs> isn't it interesting that this assay isn't working the same way as it worked for all the other enzymes you guys studied in this, you know, with this system? Yeah. And they, they're just like really disappointed and they don't see anything good in that. And I mean, that's basically it, right? It's, that's the problem. Yeah. It's that whole, it's kind of like, I don't know, pre-confirming biases or. Actually, I have another, I have, uh, another couple sentences that I think speaks to that. So I call the, um, whatever this phenomenon is of, uh, data confirming itself uh, a tautology factory yeah and so so then i go on to say the tautology factory has i say that the the one incentive is the the economic one that's pretty obvious for funding and stuff and there's another one which is uh let's see imperfect as they are the scientist's tools are all that he has the fundamental inability to directly study a phenomenon produces anxiety Handles provided by the tools of science direct the scientist's inquiries and his mind conforms to their contours. The concrete numbers displayed by his tools soothes his anxiety. Uh, a real emotional incentive is, exists to substitute the map for the terrain. So like what you were saying, that these numbers, the math becomes, you know, anything that's digital becomes really important. And I think that's because when I talk to people, you know, even that I work with, it's pretty obvious that they don't like to think about abstract concepts. They like to get the data in the form that it goes into their computer programs well and gives an answer. And then if the answer has a small enough error or something, then they go, okay, great. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't want to think about how those things interact or different kinds of interactions that they're not aware of or, or something like that. Yeah, all, all, I mean, you, you, I would you can't make a, don't want to think. Yeah, I mean, you can't make a formula for that kind of stuff. That's, I mean, that's that's right, criti I mean, that's just, critical thinking. <laughs> right, right. It's like, um, I mean, you know, basically, people don't realize how people that don't do the bench science don't realize how crude some of the tools are. Like, you know, somebody in a reading a popular science article, it might say, "Oh, we measured." Even blood cholesterol. I mean, you, you never measure something. You're always measuring like a second or third or fourth effect of the thing. So like when you measure blood glucose, you're measuring um, current in a, in a basically like a uh, multimeter that produces current when glucose, it ha the strips have, uh, uh, what's that enzyme? Just some some glucose oxidizing enzyme, and so they oxidize the glucose from the blood, and then that drives electrons between the the electrodes uh, in the probe of the meter. And so mm -hmm. what you're measuring is current. Yeah. Um. And you know, but it's a great assay, and there's very few things that would interfere with it, and it works really well. Uh, but people think you're measuring glucose, like like the the meter is like looking and has these special <laughs> eyes that can see the glucose yeah. and then counts them. Yeah. And that's a very straightforward assay. Some of these experimental assays, like basic science, especially cutting edge, I mean, there might be 
So if you consider that's like one step removed, because it's like, okay, the current, it's actually, I guess, two steps removed, because you're measuring current, which is produced by oxidized, you know, these electrons getting pulled off of glucose, which is getting produced by the amount of glucose in the blood. Uh, but some of them, the chain of events is very long and convoluted. And um, people should just respect that, and they don't understand that. And you should just take it, not that they're, they're useful tools, but they're not, you know, it, it, people think of it like, oh, they can see the molecules and they count them or something like that. And it's just not like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that is a, that's definitely true. That's something that I've realized in, in looking, you know, in, in doing some personal testing on my own you know, getting like blood tests and stuff like that. Like you have to get specific kinds of things because they're measuring different things. Right. But yeah, um, sort of on a similar note, Adele Height has uh, an article about sort of like the social process of science. Um, and she teaches a class at her university. She says, quote, one of the things we talked about were interests, including funding, but we also discussed the fact that follow the money is almost always an inadequate explanation for how and what knowledge gets created in science. My students figured out pretty quickly that scientists have multiple interests, biases, concerns, and limitations, and that these all compete for a place in the process of transforming bits of reality into the facts that are the outcomes of scientific knowledge production. And then, uh, nice. yeah, so I mean, it's very similar to what you're talking about. And then another quote that I liked from that, from that article was that government is as interested in particular outcomes from science as in, as any corporation. And that was kind of like similar to, um, what we were talking about or related to what we were talking about last time with, um, you know, the March for science that, you know, somehow public research is, is less biased, but mm -hmm. the government has its own bias. Um, you know, particularly, and you know, and it's not to say that the government can't also be, or, you know, other large corporations can't have the reins of, of the government as well. Um, but I think it's just kind of like an interesting sort of like, intellectual uh glitch or like you know a, a cognitive glitch in in a lot of these these people's minds who like think that everything should be state run because as i see it like the government is basically a a corporation with very special abilities um quite special <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but the point is that it's basically like a super corporation um, but then somehow it it's, but their concept of the government is, is that it's like perfect. Like, well, I do, do you think that they think it's perfect or a necessary well, check that's, that's against the, th the evils of corporations? Well, that's the thing is like, if you ask someone like, is, you know, like, so they, they want, they want public science, publicly funded science. Because that's not supposed to have the bias that corporations do. But then if you ask them, if you ask that person, you know, supporting that position, like, well, is the government perfect? Like, do they, 
do they get things wrong? And they like, no, of course, of course, the government gets things wrong. It's like, okay, well, then why is the government, why is publicly funded science somehow better? Well, I think that they think that um, just as devil's advocate, that the government can make mistakes and corporations can make mistakes, but the government has your heavy quotes, best interests in mind, whereas corporations have their best interests in mind. Now, I don't agree with that, but yeah. I think that's the, you know, people are very forgiving of mistakes like, oh, you know, they were, they were confused and they thought saturated fat causes heart disease. They were just confused. Yeah. <laughs> whereas if a private company, like, you know, all that stuff about the cigarette companies uh, paying researchers to, you yeah. know, I actually haven't looked into that that much. I, I'm not too interested in the cigarette question. <laughs> yeah, neither am I. Obviously, obviously they're bad for you. Although I think probably some of the stuff in modern cigarettes are worse than just the tobacco itself. Yeah, I would. I think actually I'm probably more scared of like a lot of the, like the a lot of the chemicals and whatnot that that gets put into the process as well. You know, I mean, like there's. I think there are uses for like like nicotine specifically, but I mean nicotine is also legitimately an addictive substance, so you have to be careful with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't. I, mean, I don't. I don't really like the terminology addictive, but like it's, it is. You know, it's part of the. You can become biologically dependent upon a supply of nicotine. Let's put it that way. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I think. Uh that i like that adele <laughs> i like that adele height because um you know i talked to her a lot last year in boulder mm -hmm. and she was just really really like buying what i was selling about <laughs> questioning the 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 low carb assumptions oh really yeah she was just really into i mean it seems like she's really into questioning things like that's her oh yeah for sure i mean yeah and I mean, the whole article is, is is pretty entertaining to read, you know. I mean, she's – I mean, yeah, she talks about – let me see, like, uh, you know, how people basically – it's like, oh, you know, why why is, is saturated fat bad? Well, it's because of all the evil sugar companies came along and then and then paid all the researchers to to do bad science and stuff like that, you know. Mm -hmm. That's basically the – the layman's concept of like why all the the research is bad. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a pretty uh pretty weak. <laughs> well, I I just I mean I I totally agree. like her when she talks about like follow the money is almost always an inadequate explanation, like. I like totally like I was like, yes, thank you. Somebody else gets that because like I'm just so tired of people always saying, you know, like qui bono and stuff like that. Um, uh -huh. Like there are so many other. um, Like it's just not an interesting explanation anymore. So that's all anybody ever has to say is, you know, it's all about the money. Yeah, well, I think it's like it's um, uh, simplifying incentives because you know people i think like at this point in society money and 
capitalism and making money are pretty demonized. I guess they always have been. And it's easy to just say, you know, somebody has bad intentions or greedy intentions if they're seeking money. And it's much harder to look at perhaps like non-monetary, like almost money substitutes like power and um, prestige, like for a scientist and promotions and stuff like that. It's not the same. It's not as easy as just saying, hey, look, that guy got, you know, a $1 million check from oil companies. Yeah. So, you know, he, that means he's completely a liar and saying completely what they want him to say. Yeah. And this other person who didn't get a check is completely honest. Yeah. And that, that person came up with a competing theory and they're not invested in that being correct at all. <laughs> right. Another thing that I said in that essay, let's see, because uh, I made the point that um, state agencies, you know, like centrally planned research, they they don't have any ability to rationally allocate resources, right? It's like there's no price structure. It's it's like the Soviet Union had to use the prices from like the Sears catalog because they couldn't decide, like, how do we know if we need more wheat or more concrete? Like until somebody's starving to death, you can't know that unless there's prices, you know? Yeah. Because like if there's less wheat, like there's a bad harvest, the price will go up and then more farmers will plant wheat and or you can buy it from the outside or whatever. But if the prices can't change, then you won't know until you're at an acute like we don't have this, we can't. And that so all the time, you know, they can't make uh, toothbrushes because there's not enough bristles, but you've got all these handles, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so the funding agencies, they need some metric to dispense their funds. And I likened it to Hollywood. Like, you know, in Hollywood, you've got your lowbrow films, your highbrow films, your middlebrow films, but everybody likes special effects. Like the latest and greatest special effects are always, um, provided they're not like really botched. Uh, they're always heralded as good. And so with like the National Institutes of Health, they always tend towards cutting edge techniques. That's like their main kind of thing. It's like if you have a new technique or a new um, theoretical model or mechanism that is new, <laughs> then that's like their number one. Or maybe that's number two. I think number one is just people who have previously gotten funding will get funding again. That's like their number one bias. And then the second one is cutting edge techniques um, and novel theoretical models. And that's not to say like new ideas, but like just the obvious next step of all the other previous ideas, like nothing that would overturn previous science, but just another cartoon drawing of like how a molecule connects to like its receptor or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like how, how textbooks are, are produced nowadays. Like instead of like writing better text they just give you pictures and diagrams and then now they're giving you pictures and color and then you know it's you know it's basically based on like what what kind of like new technology they can input and the, one of the same thing and even more so like you know now like i don't know if it's really happening anymore but i know for like about like five years ago it was like a big thing to like bring more technology you know and give every kid an ipad and stuff like that and it's like just like teach the the course 
you, you, <laughs> you, like this new this new technology is not going to it's not helping i think it's actually you know if anything it's actually hurting because it's it's detracting from the focus on the content of the course right right it's like special effects um in a movie that's like poorly written and poorly directed and poorly acted yeah yeah definitely um another thing so a while ago i mentioned that mercola article and uh there was another one that I found. And I just thought this was too funny. Um, so the Mercola article, it's like, okay, it's 2010. Robert Lustig is on top of the world and he's jumping on that band tra- or bandwagon. And, uh, but this is from the American Society for Nutrition Journal. Uh, and the art, it's an article from 2007, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition by George A. Bray. And the title is, how bad is fructose? <laughs> yeah. So it's like leapfrogging. Is fructose bad or is that even, a, does that question make sense? You know, it's leapfrogging all of these concepts and going right to how bad is it? It's kind of like how fast are we all going to drown under the climate change rising tide? You know, you, you leapfrog like oh, yeah. all of these things. That's, and that's just actually, like, yeah, that's a good I, I like that word leapfrog for like what we were talking about earlier with like cholesterol. It's like leapfrogging, you know, the heart disease. Right. Cause you can't actually connect, you know, experimentally, you know, not everybody that has high cholesterol has, you know, the, the high heart disease outcomes. Yeah. It's not like so a, it's not like a one to one connection, but yeah, basically it, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can call it that leapfrogging. But anyway, sorry, I I just liked that that terminology. Yeah, it, yeah, it's uh, this article. I mean, it's it's just a little. Um, it's an editorial actually, and it just talks about some of the uh, experimental articles and I guess reviews in that in this issue of the journal. And so he just goes on to say, you know, the increase in dietary fructose, and then talks you know historically how there's not that much sources of fructose there's like honey and fruit and stuff and um just does a bunch of math like oh look at these the percentage going up blah 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 and then uh talks a little bit about the biology how it's different than glucose you know how it supposedly uses the glute 5 transporter instead of the glute 4 transporter which uh you know, GLUT4 is supposed to be expressed in just about every cell, whereas GLUT5 is mostly just in the liver. And that's why fructose ends up mostly in the liver. Um, and uh, that the metabolism favors lipogenesis. So it favors lipogenesis. <laughs> now, they have a, uh, a reference there. It's like, see, number four. Dietary fructose implications for dysregulation of energy homeostasis. So I didn't read that uh, reference, but so you said previously that it's like 5% or less of fructose gets directly made into triglyceride, yeah, you know, fatty acids. So that's to say that that's favoring lipogenesis 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think they must mean <laughs> it probably increases lipogenesis having a really high amount of fructose by a hundred or two hundred percent. So it goes from like one percent to two or three percent. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that that's the number they'll go with. They'll be like, oh look, it increases lipogenesis by a factor of three, you know, threefold or something. But what they won't say is that it goes from like one percent to three percent or what you know. Um, which is the same in cholesterol studies, you know, cause you'll have like a thousand people in one group, a thousand people in another group for statins and two people in the, uh, placebo group have a heart attack and one person in the statin group has a heart attack. So they go, Oh look, it cuts heart attacks down by 50%. Yeah. Cause two to one, you know, yeah. not 1000 or, you know, 998 <laughs> to 999. Um, so yeah, this is just really bad and. I guess they were like, you can kind of see, uh, like, so the Mercola thing was in 2010 and this was 2007. So you can see like how it happens. You start getting these editorials in, I mean, this is a serious journal. Like they, at least they take themselves seriously. Yeah. And they're, and have it just to have an editorial titled how bad is fructose? I mean, it's like a tabloid. <laughs> Yeah, actually, it's kind of interesting because I had a uh, as kind of a little summary of what the American Journal of Clinical Clinician or Clinical Nutrition uh, is releasing in their May 2017 issue, uh, and I found two things interesting about it. Uh, number one, um, they have a few. Uh, studies about omega-3 fatty acids and they introduce it by saying omega-3 fatty acids and health a complex relation requiring more research combined results from three independently conducted studies reveal no real surprise to nutrition experts the relation the relation between omega-3 intake and health is complex uh, they're really, they're really saying a lot there well what i found that the reason why i found that interesting is because like maybe the reasons why it's complex is because people have this idea of what it's supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to be good and whatnot. And they're finding things that are bad about it. Like that would, that would be complex because it's like, Hey, it's supposed to be good, but it's doing bad things. Why? But all right. So your audio is back. Yeah. I don't remember what I was saying though. Oh, well I was, that's cause I was talking. Oh, okay. I was talking yeah about the, AGCN or AJCN. Um, and then the, so there was the omega 3 study. Um, and, you know, well, well, I guess, yeah, actually, you did have a comment because I made a comment about how, you know, the reason why it might be complex, the relationship between omega 3 fatty acids and health. Yeah, right, right. That the, the lesson that had been hammered home for about 20 years is that omega 3 is good. So if any negative data comes out, then people like kind of scratch their heads like, wait a second, but it's good. Yeah, it's it's not a straightforward story. <laughs> why, it's why, never why been is, straightforward. Yeah. Why is something that's good doing bad things? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the they really tortured the data to begin with uh, to get that story. Um because, you know, a lot of those studies, like the, the foundational, you know, omega-3 reduces uh, cardiovascular disease outcomes and stuff like that, um, 
a lot of those studies were repeated and like with really good clinical studies and showed no benefit of omega-3 supplementation. And this is in, I think, the early 2000s. And it just didn't get reported because the, the omega-3 snowball had just been rolling and had picked up so much momentum. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how that happened. I always, I always find uh, like the origins of like all these different hypotheses that we sort of now take for granted. I always find finding out the origins of them uh, really fascinating. Like for instance, like the cholesterol is those uh, rabbit experiments um, by some Russian scientists in like 1906 and stuff like that. And then obviously, Ansel Keys uh, did his work. Um, and then in the Ray Peat group, they have this. Um, there's an article I haven't read it yet, but in just in the in the beginning, they say, "quote The dangerous myth that salt raises blood pressure began more than 100 years ago with French scientists Ambard and Bochard. They based their findings on the on the studies of just six patients. Um, so <laughs> I'm I'm really interesting to read about that because I've I've never really found out like where exactly that that hypothesis came from so and that's uh it's in the daily mail yeah that's really interesting not only not only are the origins interesting but i would say to a to a t like every example they're underwhelming like whatever somebody <laughs> yeah. thinks the evidence is it's much like weaker at least one order of magnitude weaker than whatever it seems like it should be and perhaps more than that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that's, that's another one of the things that, that fascinates me is sort of like the, the historical aspect of nutritional science. Like there's this, um, this one guy, um, and he's doing like a whole series of articles about just kind of like the, the research of like certain topics. Um, and I haven't read his stuff. His name was like Kenneth or something like that. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's another reason why I like Ray Pete is because he also has a lot of that, that perspective as well. Right. Yeah. It's, it's rare that somebody cares enough to pay attention critically to the science for the length of time that he has. Like most people, if they ever cared at all, like by the time they're through the process of becoming an academic you know, they spend all their time like writing grants or whatever. And, um, yeah, it's, it's almost basically within the science system, within the academy, you can't have that because they pull your time away and all the incentives are away from that. So it's really only an outsider like Ray Pete or like in economics, you know, a person like Nassim Taleb that can have a balanced perspective. Yeah. But it's also extremely valuable. Yeah, I mean that's what the that's what these people should be. That's what the academics should be. Um, but they're just just not really possible. Yeah. Um, so earlier I mentioned how like I have a a bit of a pet peeve with like metaphors, or I try to avoid using them because I think they can sort of muddy the waters um, uh -uh. about things. Um, and like the whole like concept of quote burning calories is is one of them um and i mean like using the phrase burning calories is actually accurate because 
um, calories were determined experimentally by like burning foods and then like seeing how much uh, heat energy they produce. Is that like I I know like there's like different kinds of calories like that's that's accurate, right? That's right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So and like um, and I I think that that was actually a um, like a really like valid and and useful experiment um because if i understand like the the reasoning behind behind that experiment was to like find out how many calories were in each in in food so that way um you could like figure out i think it was like for like knowing like how much food to like give each person in different institutions like prisons and hospitals and stuff like that uh-huh. you know basically um, but of course, you know, as noble as, as that was, um, like it, you know, it ended up, ended up reducing foods, you know, making a, a reductionist concept of foods. Um, because then what is food now? It's just fuel. And, right. you know, the thing about fuel is, or how we think of fuel most of the time is that it's fungible and it's a bulk commodity. Um, and so we don't think of like food as being different. A potato is a potato, an egg is an egg. Um, and so you ignore, um, pretty much everything else really about that food. Um, you know, of course, you know, my big thing is you're ignoring micronutrients, but like even, um, that, I mean, that even affects like, uh, macronutrients, because then you know a protein is a protein like you know right. beans are just as as valid a protein as a uh, as a potato or a steak or liver right yeah um i think that the burning calories is particularly bad because and i think the reason why it's stuck like phrases become popular cuz they capture like a certain idea that can be transmitted easily and the idea of burning something like especially when the automobile was invented and burning gasoline Mm -hmm. and it just makes so much sense to the average person everybody understands that concept like you fill up your tank well it it creates a a very like vivid like a a visual that you can see in your head and i don't know if you've been following like scott adams but um part of the reason yeah part of the reason why he considered trump so successful is because he create he puts these images in your head um you know like crooked hillary that has like a visual aspect to it you know saying like when you were talking about this in the first episode i think you know he's saying like build a wall you can see that wall in your head and right. stuff like that so and the same thing with like burning calories like you were just saying is you like you get the the combustive engine in your head Right. And I think the part that that gets me about all this is you can really forgive uh, lay people for using that idea, you know, because it's given to them by nutritionists and doctors and scientists. But the scientists, when you look at the cartoons they draw about molecular mechanisms, it's pretty obvious that it's heavily influenced by just the idea of like, you know, (laughs) the uh, internal combustion engine. Um, Yeah. Like, because... You know, when they make these models, 
and they have like an artist draw it or whatever they do, there's, there's like little decisions that they can make about exactly how to represent an idea, you know, and they don't always know they're making them, but it's like even just little stuff like making something a square instead of a circle, you know, like sort of insignificant stuff. But it, when they're drawing these mechanisms and explaining them, they make all these idea, uh, choices. And I think a lot of their choices are informed by that, like burning fuel idea and that, you know, like the ATPAs for bring, letting the hydrogen ions through in the mitochondria, like the supposed, um, way that, you know, fuel is oxidized to produce ATP is very like, it looks like, um, a water mill, you know, water falling down and spinning the, uh, the mill and, you know, which would be connected to a alternator somewhere to produce electricity or something. Mm -hmm. It looks like that. Hmm. And it's pretty obvious that these people were influenced. Like they didn't pick that out of their imagination or it's highly unlikely that they picked it out of their imagination without being influenced by these real world world things that they're at least partially conceptually confusing for each other. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's like, it's another one of those uh, cognitive biases that uh, a good research scientist should, should be aware of. Yeah. You know, that's actually a good point. They should teach that should be, you know, not obviously I want the entire university system to just disappear, but uh, absent that, that should be a required course for all science uh, graduate students. Yeah, that would actually be uh, something for you to work on, I think. Um, I think you'd have a lot of ideas for that. Yeah, I could work on it as like <laughs> <laughs> but i guess There's... yeah I, I guess to do something like that i don't know you'd probably have to be a few years a decade or two down the road huh well i would never be able to teach that in a university because um i think there'd be significant pushback for making it required and so i don't know oh, who would well take yeah it. no i don't mean like required but just like a course Right. Yeah. I think that you would almost have to be a social scientist or a psychologist. Like they would almost say, well, you're not like we hired you in biochemistry. So like these hirings, it's a very, you could be a better teacher of that course than the social scientist, but they're not going to have you teach it because that's not what they hired you to do. Mm. In fact, they specifically, you know, these universities, the funding, um, if you're hired in the life sciences department, they have a different budget, you know? Yeah. So they would have to call it cognitive biases in life sciences. You know what I mean? To like justify that course going to life sciences too. It would just be really complicated, which is why the system just has to disappear because nothing can ever get done. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's by design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was actually, I started, I wrote like uh, this little thing because um, I was working on the book a tiny bit and I started a chapter about the journal article system and the main theme of the chapter, like one of the sentences I wrote is it almost seems like, cause today I was uh, looking at the notes that you put on a Google drive and some of the papers were, you know, free. And some of them um, I was able to get through my Rutgers access. I still have. And I think like one of them, I couldn't get access to the full, uh, the full text. And I was looking at it and I've seen this a million times, but, 
they say, oh, you know, you can buy this one article or you can subscribe. And the articles are like $40. Yeah. And it's like 10 pages and two pages are references and two pages are figures. And uh, so like one of the main themes of that chapter is going to be, it almost seems like the goal is to keep this primary information out of the hands of the public while making it look like it's available because it's technically for sale. Like mm -hmm. in a way that nobody that's not literally writing a book about it and absolutely requires the primary literature in order to like read something that they're going to make money from. Nobody would ever spend $40 for one article. Yeah. It's like, oh, I want to figure out about blood glucose because my doctor says I'm pre-diabetic. Oh, here's 10 articles. Yeah, let me just put down $400. Like, <laughs> yeah. how many articles are there? Yeah. Like, thousands and thousands. Yeah. Who would – which one do you pick to, to buy for $40? It's crazy. Yeah, it's absurd. So that – I mean, when you said, like, by design, to me, that smacks of design is that it just does not seem coincidental that uh, there's all these all these things are publicly funded by tax money and they're technically available to the public kind of sort of, but nobody in the public ever reads them. And it's like, wasn't that nice? <laughs> yeah. But what they do read is the secondary and tertiary articles written by like, you know, Science Direct or American Scientist or whatever, and then BuzzFeed will pick that up and write some garbage. And so you get like whisper down the lane with all this like political spin put on it. Uh, for free that just comes up in your Facebook feed, mm -hmm. but the actual information you have to dig for hours to find and then pay $40 to have like 24 hours of access to like five pages of text. <laughs> yeah, I know it. It's really crazy. Yeah, it's I mean, I even as a student occasionally my um, university doesn't have like instant access so I could request it and then somebody like photocopies it somewhere <laughs> And sends it to me, which is okay um, if I'm writing something that's going to take a while because I'll just wait for it. But it's just funny that even scientists themselves don't have access to, like, even if they're in a university, there's still a significant amount of the literature, especially the older literature that hasn't all been digitized, um, that you don't have instant access to or it's very difficult to get. And you'd think, like, somebody marching for science, you know. If there's one thing that would be healthy for the relationship between like science and the citizenry, it would be complete open access and uh, accountability, um, transparency, and that's the exact opposite of what you know the NIH and the journals and the universities tend to produce. Yeah, well. If you're not marching for science that way you can read it you're marching so that way somebody else can do it for you <laughs> right 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 like i guess you can't get people to show up for a march a march for um journal articles that are financed by <laughs> already tax that's, dollars. that's boring <laughs> right <laughs> like taxpayer access to taxpayer funded i mean yeah whatever it's, yeah yeah no, that's <laughs> way too boring. 
I'm actually looking at the uh, Lustig paper right now. I've got his like because we were talking about models and yeah. metaphors. Yeah, I just wanted to say one more thing about like the burning calories and the visual. Okay. Um, like you know, people talk about you know again with like the the low carb craze, like people talk about like being a fat burner, and again, like that's because you you know people used to burn oil and you know like whale fat and stuff in lamps. Right. You know, so again, that creates another awesome visual image in your head like that you're like literally just like burning the fat like around your legs and your stomach and whatnot like it's just like (laughs) you just like put like a flame in there and it's just like melting away literally and again with the melting 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 the fat away and stuff like that like it's like that's i mean scott adams is right like that's how you you really get through to people is make an awesome visual metaphor and I mean, it's, yeah. I think it's true is because, um, you know, as humans, that's what we rely on most is our vision. And we're like so highly developed um, to use the vision. Um, there's a uh, it's not really as big anymore. I think it used to be called like Edenism. It was like this really like really, really uh, underground thing. Um, but basically the whole deal was like the shape of your skull sort of like determines certain like personality characteristics about you. Mm. And one of the, the hypotheses was that like, if you have like a larger, like in the back of your skull, which is the, um, I believe the occipital, occipital lobe in the back yeah. you know that's like where I think you're, you have an extra b there but that's fine. yeah i know i can't, I, <laughs> I know that but i can't get it out like i'm just stuttering but anyways um yeah so that's your visual processing center back there and so supposedly a lot of like inventors and whatnot have uh you know a quite quite large occipital oh, shit <laughs> occip i don't know they they have a you know a larger <laughs> visual processing center in their brain uh-huh. um and that allows them to visualize whatever they're discovering or inventing and whatnot and so yeah i mm-hmm. i just think that's that's such a crucial part of of human cognition yeah yeah that's actually you know that that trump thing at- that really fits in with like the things that I've been thinking about and writing about a little bit with the the models and like the cartoon drawings and how that becomes like these scientists, they'll be like, have all their stuff like in a bucket of ice, you know, and be like testing their samples one at a time. And I get the impression that they literally in their mind are imagining like the cartoon thing happen, like from the textbook. Yeah. And uh, that's really bad. Like they, <laughs> like that's it's just really bad and and you can't really discuss it with people because they'll go oh no i mean i know that's not what it really looks like <laughs> but yeah. it's you know it's it's like a pre um i guess the the occipital lobe is probably pre uh frontal cortex right so it's like they're doing that before they're critically analyzing that they're doing it yeah. So unless you stop yourself and go, okay, am I doing this like very consciously, then you're going to do it. 
which is exactly why Trump was successful, like with that style. And it was so brilliant. Yeah. Well, I think the other two thing too, is like, we just, we just think visually, like try to think about something in your head and not, not, not visually. Like, I don't know how you could do that. Even a lot of times, even when I'm talking, I'm seeing the words that I'm saying in my head. Right. So, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, yeah, you do, you need the, the, the prefrontal cortex is kind of like there as like a, a break on things, I guess. Not cause not really as like a, something to supersede, uh, anything else, but just as like a break. Yeah. You just have to be aware you're doing it. Like it's obviously a tremendous strength to be able to visualize. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people go, okay, so I've got the visual and they don't examine like how confident am I that this visual is correct. They just go, I'm comfortable with the visual because I'm a visual animal and I like the visual. Like they don't know that, you know? <laughs> hmm. So they think that the visual is good, is better information than other information because they're predisposed to prefer that information. Yeah. I wonder if that means that like people who who are very like so people who ha- are who can think very visually and can imagine those things in their head um are typically pretty good at like with abstract concepts because they're able to visualize them in your head and so i wonder if like their ability to develop those visual concepts so so easily um makes them more prone to to basically being arrogant and like saying that this is or you know not not accepting that they could be wrong or something like that. Yeah. I think that there's probably a way that emotion gets tied to a certain visual, you know? Oh yeah. And, and that like, for example, like if somebody just has something in their imagination, like very fleeting, they wouldn't really care if somebody said that's dumb. But if it's like something that they somehow invested emotion in, you know, then it's like, no, this visual is like, you know, it's like I self-identify with this visual concept. Oh, do you want to talk about Lustig then? Just a little bit. I'm mean, I'm just looking at his figure one. It says hepatic glucose metabolism, uh, and it goes through the whole rigmarole of like it has a little picture of the brain and like leptin going to the brain and insulin going to the brain. It's got something for the liver and something for the muscle and triglycerides. Um, and then there's a big circle that's like inside of a cell. Uh, and the cell is supposed to represent like any one of these cells and that how like glucose, you know, goes through glycolysis and everything. And then there's, um, and then he has the same cartoon for the metabolism of ethanol. And then he has one for the metabolism of fructose. And so he just makes the argument through these like, kind of busy graphics that have, you know, the arrows going all over the place and the different proteins and, uh, metabolites of, uh, macronutrients and stuff like that. Um, saying that the way fructose metabolism looks in this drawing that somebody made (laughs) looks closer to the drawing of ethanol metabolism than it does to the drawing of glucose metabolism. (laughs) And isn't that like just isn't that, doesn't that just say it all right there? Because if you just gave somebody 
for like five days just glucose or just fructose. Like person A gets just glucose, person B gets just fructose, and person C gets just ethanol. I would bet the farm that person A and B are going to have a similar, more similar experience than either person A or person B does with person C, right? Person C will be dead. Yeah. Like if all they have to consume is, is ethanol in addition to say water. Yeah. Um, but if you look at this drawing with these arrows and all these words like inflammatory, you know, JNK1, PKC epsilon, alcohol dehydrogenase 1B, like all these technical sounding things, you go, oh, but look, obviously fructose is more like ethanol than it is like glucose. And it's like, you know, like, <laughs> what do you feel more similar after? Drinking vodka, eating a piece of bread, or eating a piece of candy? Like, which one's the outlier, you know? <laughs> which one and, of these is not like the other? Right. And it's just like, this is almost the perfect culmination of it doesn't matter like what your experience is or like what the outcomes are. This drawing with these arrows and everything says that the metabolism of fructose shares more in common with ethanol than, than it does with glucose. Uh, and that's, that's basically like the, that's the theme right there is that you've got this visual and people like a lot of people read this and went, yeah, totally, of course. Um, and if you ask them, like, you know, when you eat a lot of fructose, like, do you feel like what happens when you drink a lot of alcohol or when you eat a lot of glucose? Like, and, you know, obviously their answer would, I don't know exactly what their answer would be, but I'd guess it would be, you know, the fructose and the glucose are more similar. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why, but that kind of reminded me of a couple of other um, metaphors that I dislike. Um, like, I remember Jack Cruz actually saying this, but, you know, he's talking about why sugar is bad. And he's talking about, like, when you have, um, if you, like, you spill some maple syrup on your on your kitchen counter and then it hardens and crystallizes then of course that's what it does in your body, you know? Uh -huh. And it's like what a lot of like, um, you know, people that talk about like why animal fats are bad and a lot of vegetarians will say this is like, you don't want butter cause it'll clog your arteries. It's just like, if you put like fat down a drain. Right. Um, but you know, like what happens if you just like shove a whole bunch of broccoli down a drain, does that also clog the, the drain? <laughs> like, <laughs> right 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 you know it's like these these things are are not the same um you know base your body breaks well i'm free first of all the it never reaches like your actual like body it never reaches them in those those forms your stomach breaks them down you know your whole right. digestive system breaks them down and technically your di your digestive system is actually not part of your body like it's external to everything else it's basically like this right. one long tube that that goes through your body right 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 so they're they're thinking like you you eat fat and then it, it basically gets into your blood vessels as liquid fat the same yeah. way as if you're pouring it into a drain yeah but of course you know any any kind of 
anybody who's done any, any research knows that you know you have these these lipid um carrying proteins that that take care of that that make it soluble in, in blood right yeah yeah that's a i guess yeah there's like you can sort of tell if somebody's like on the level or if they're trying to be a little dishonest, like with how they use these, these metaphors. Cause I, I really like metaphors and analogies, oh, yeah. but um, yeah, obviously if somebody's like clog, clog your arteries and yeah, but again, see, it creates those visual images again that we're all so right. familiar with, you know, you clog something or, or yeah, you put um, and you know, everybody's had like, sugar like a soda or something like that you spill a soda or something like that and it gets all sticky and stuff and you're like oh well, right. of course like that's that's what causes the glycation you know it makes you all wrinkly and and glycates all your proteins and stuff like that because it's all sticky <laughs> yeah yeah which actually did, yeah, did you want to talk about um the master john episode about glycation oh yeah it's my last tap that i have here Awesome. Um, so I read it, and it's I think it's really good in that it explains, you know, it kind of like, I feel like what he likes to do, what he does pretty well, is he'll take one of these um, bumper sticker concepts, like advanced glycation end products from sugar, and he'll just explode it into <laughs> detail, you yeah. know, um, like zoom in. Uh, so... You know, he, he talks about like where the glycation comes from. He uses methyl glyoxal as a representative and shows that it can come from any three of the macronutrients and that specifically glucose and glucose metabolism appear to oppose its production. Um, the only thing I didn't like is that he he didn't talk about the uh, – he didn't make any quantity statements. He just made quality statements. So – like he says, you know, methyl glyoxal can be produced during glycolysis and it can be produced from fatty acids and it can be produced from, is it threonine? Yeah, from the amino acid threonine, mm -hmm. uh, especially in a deficiency of, uh, I think, vitamin B5, uh, coenzyme A. So, but he doesn't say, because the real question isn't, you know, because anything can be produced from anything at some level. So mm -hmm. the real question is like, what's the physiologically relevant one? And I didn't get that from his discussion, but he, you know, he does talk about it for a while, and everything he says is is pretty good. I think. What did you think? Um. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of. I mean, I I like a lot of his stuff that he does because he, you know, basically, you know, like you said, he takes this bumper sticker idea of some sort of um nutritional truth that everyone takes as gospel uh and then he shows the the complexity of like what's actually going on behind there um uh -huh. and then um what you said actually about how you know any sort of like any of the macronutrients can can produce the methyl glyoxal um and sort of how you can get pretty much anything from anything else uh -huh. that concept of like transmutation like that that's one that really fascinates me but i haven't really found too much on it All i remember is like there's like this um this french 
researcher, I think, and he was talking about like silica and like calcium in chicks or something like that. But that whole idea of transmutation, I find pretty fascinating because I think it could explain, um, you know, why, why you can do basically this, you know, you can, um, uh, produce and maintain the same kind of human being under like multiple varied diets because biology is like so flexible uh-huh. you, just, you just as long as you have the enzymes which allow you to the enzymes and the cofactors that allow you to like change one thing from another then you're good to go yeah i think it's just a matter of energy you know like anything yeah exactly if you have that, enough energy you can make anything into anything else yeah that's that's kind of the conclusion i've come to as well like as long as you have enough energy then then your body can produce those things but i still think that like having um like i said you know the, those cofactors is also it, it makes the process a lot easier like if you if you have a deficiency in one cofactor then it it makes it a lot harder to produce like let's say like if you know in order to make make cofactor or you know like vitamin uh x uh-huh. uh you need cofactor a and b but you have a deficiency in cofactor b um but you can make cofactor b if you um you know and usually there's like a couple of different like pathways that you can make any given thing. Uh-huh. But so like, but if you're missing one of those things, then you're more reliant on one pathway over another. Right. And sometimes you get a buildup of byproducts that, you know, at a higher amount and would be optimal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. I, that's, I think that's like an extremely huge topic to tackle because you'd basically have to like investigate like a dozens of of different pathways and whatnot but that's definitely the impression that i get from the research that that i've seen is that um you know biology is extremely flexible and and your your genes are what kind of determine what you're able to do but if you have a gene like let's say somebody has a gene that allows them produce to produce a lot of like retinol from beta carotene and then somebody uh-huh. else doesn't well that person right. they can do just fine eating um high amounts of beta carotene they can still get the retinol that they need the other person can't but the person who but they can both eat retinol and be just fine right and so like the the enzymes are just kind of there as like a safeguard that allows you to sort of scavenge scavenge um all the other materials in order to produce the ones that you need right yeah i mean they basically lower the energy of certain production processes yes and that's the other thing too is because yeah the enzymes usually make things that are not like chemically feasible happen that they wouldn't really happen under you know just like in a in a solution yeah well it's just at very small amounts like if you just had a solution of beta carotene some amount of that will just auto you know hydrolyze into into retinol 
but it wouldn't be any kind of significant amount that could be considered nutritional. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of like a big, a big thing, big open-ended thing. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? Oh, I think that's a pretty good, uh, meandering discussion of fructose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, no, it's, it's good. I think we did a good job. I'll do, uh, one more, um, one more topic. It's just a, a quick little question. If you were going to take, so the classic, you know, if you're stranded on an island, okay, what five food sources would you want? Oh, um, okay. So I was not given this question, uh, <laughs> prior to the podcast. So off the top of my head, um, let's see, uh, milk yeah. would probably be number one. Let's, I think let's just kind of like cheat and say like, you can have the whole cow and then get like the milk from that. Is that, is that fine? Oh, so we're talking about like like food sources like actual yeah. robinson crusoe type stuff i think yeah oh well i don't know how i mean both ways are going to kind of like answer different right because i was thinking more questions. like just magically getting delivered these five oh, okay. <laughs> if you want to do it that way too we can do that um well realistically then yeah i mean you would want like if you had to grow your own food on an island you would definitely want like an animal, you know, to yeah. be able to breed cows for meat and milk. Yeah, no, but I think actually, chickens. yeah, the direction you were going, I think, is actually more enlightening. So let's go with that, where it's just the magic okay. food, the food is delivered to you. Yeah, so definitely milk, because I think you could just probably live on that better than any other single food source. Um, mm -hmm. I think I might go with honey, because it's a really good source of carbs and has some minerals and you could also use it medicinally uh like for cuts and stuff mm -hmm. and uh some kind of meat although i guess if i had to pick i might just say like liver um yeah since i would be so nutritionally restricted and i would want all the micronutrients i can get and then probably like a just a bulk nutrition source like rice or something i would actually go and, for like potatoes over rice uh yeah i can see that i guess i just sort of like rice better okay <laughs> <laughs> uh so that's not like a super uh strategic answer yeah no, um yeah. and then maybe some kind of fruit i don't know i feel like i haven't surveyed my my mind well enough to see if i'm missing like a big yeah anything big there but that off the top of my head yeah it would be like a couple sources of carbs and then a couple reliable animal foods yeah well i just i mean when i was thinking of this question sort of how i was thinking of it was like yeah you want like your you know you're basically your different kind of like macronutrients and you also want to make sure that you're getting enough micronutrients from these things and i my answer was pretty much was pretty similar although like i said i would probably do potatoes uh for the fruit source i would probably do oranges um um oh and then like shellfish i like i think you could do you could do shellfish in place of liver um because you're gonna get you know good amounts of like vitamin a and copper and 
and iron um and particularly in the case of like shellfish zinc right you know so you'll get all of that stuff and then like the milk provides you with like calcium and, and magnesium the fruit will give you like potassium so that's pretty much my answer i mean the only th- the only other thing i c- is like what kind of like 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 the issue of like muscle meat and uh-huh. um more gelatinous meats uh because i think like you know having like a that excess of methionine and you know glycine has you know i haven't seen anything bad about glycine actually like it helps you know i think it recycles methionine but it at least like makes it so that way methionine you can't it makes methionine less bad and then you know it does like so many other things like decreasing inflammation and stuff like that right yeah um, modulating inflammation one. i should say because i mean yeah that's the thing is like i get what you're saying about like using like liver as as a source of like uh meat protein but uh i don't know if you've like had liver but you can't <laughs> eat too much of it yeah i you know i can cook it actually pretty well um but yeah it's definitely not like just taste wise i certainly wouldn't pick it over any muscle meat yeah i actually made a really good uh the recipe that i like for liver um it's basically i just like cook the liver on a bed of like apples and and cut up mushrooms cut up apples and cut up mushrooms and then i the key is tarragon getting fresh tarragon and just like putting like a like a, a teaspoon of fresh tarragon into into there and then also you can do like maybe like a half teaspoon to a teaspoon of like black pepper and that's how i uh-huh. i have liver it's actually really good i actually almost instead of it being like a chore i that's actually don't think it's too bad uh do you cook the apples and mushrooms yeah so you just put the liver on there and cook it it's altogether. kind of it's kind of like a little saute yeah like so i put everything on the all those other ingredients besides the liver in there and cook it for like a, a few minutes okay um and then i put the liver in there and then just cook that until it's until it's cooked through until there's like no more like blood coming out of it because i think it's i think the blood is like what makes it so um unpalatable to a lot of people right um i i have a liver trick it's to sear it uh, I found that if you get a really good sear, like a crust, uh, around the outside, it like probably creates some sort of uh, umami, you know, flavor reactions that make the whole experience a lot more pleasant. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I yeah I've, I've heard of that as well. Actually, um, someone else recommended that to me. And I think I tried it once, but it didn't really work for me. But I probably just did it wrong. Uh, I pat it dry. I like put it on paper towel first, mm. and uh, let it sit there for a while, and then you know drop it on a pan with butter or coconut oil or whatever, and try and cook it at a decently high heat. And uh, yeah, it'll cook the outside pretty fast. <clears throat> hmm. 
yeah, I'll have to try that. But for now, I like I like my my liver recipe. It's working for me. Yeah, I might try that too. That sounds decent. Yeah, I like it too because it's like it's actually like it's like something that you could like cook for people like as like a a dinner and be like reasonably proud of. Right, and they wouldn't just totally yeah <laughs> dismiss it as weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not like you just like like me like like my eggs and whatnot or like oysters like I just down them raw and whole, <laughs> you know. It's it's right. not it's not very interesting from like a culinary perspective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all right. I think well, that was good. We got a couple of tips at the end there. <laughs> Pro tips. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Look forward to more. Yeah. All right. It was good talking to you and we'll talk again next month <laughs>